You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 147 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this episode, we'll continue working our way through Stonewall Jackson's 1862 Valley Campaign. As y'all recall, in the spring of 1862, the Confederate nation faced a crisis of vast proportions. After a succession of disasters all across the map, the Confederacy then faced perhaps its greatest test as a massive federal army led by George McClellan advanced up the peninsula and closed in on the rebel capital of Richmond. Jackson's actions in the Shenandoah Valley were meant to tie down the Union forces opposite him and so reduce the odds against Richmond. After being forced out of Winchester by overwhelming enemy numbers, Stonewall had returned to the outskirts of the town by March 23rd to prevent Union forces from leaving the valley and aiding the advance on Richmond. The resulting battle at tiny Kernstown was a fiasco for Jackson and his valley army. And yet, despite the fact that tactically it had been a poorly conducted fight, Kernstown turned into a strategic victory for the Confederacy, when it resulted in changes in federal troop dispositions, changes that would give Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston a better chance to defend Richmond. And then in April, Robert E. Lee, who was in Richmond at that time, acting as Jefferson Davis's military advisor, arranged for the division of Major General Richard S. Ewell to support Jackson's activities in the Valley. Ewell's 8,500-man division had been waiting on the eastern side of the Blue Ridge Mountains, awaiting orders that would either send it west to the Shenandoah or east to aid in the defense of Richmond. In late April, though, it was decided that Ewell would take his men over the mountains to support Stonewall. No sooner had Ewell's division taken the place of the Valley Army near Conrad's store with orders to keep an eye on Nathaniel Banks, then Jackson took the Valley Army to Stanton, where he linked up with a small Confederate force led by Edward Allegheny Johnson. Stonewall was concerned about a potential meeting of Banks, who was advancing up the valley, and the enemy force led by John C. Fremont, which was advancing out of the rugged Allegheny Mountains. To keep Banks and Fremont from joining forces, Stonewall planned to combine the Valley Army and Allegheny Johnson's men and using speed and surprise, strike Fremont such a blow that he would be pushed back away from the valley. The result was the Battle of McDowell, which took place on May 8th. 
Tactically, the clash was again not Stonewall's finest hour, as he was surprised by a spoiling attack launched by one of the Union commanders on the scene, Robert Milroy. The Confederates had to scramble just to fend off the Federals, which they did, but in the process, Jackson suffered nearly twice as many losses on the defensive as did the Yankee attackers. But again, although poorly handled tactically, this was another battle that turned into strategic victory for Stonewall since the clash and his subsequent pursuit of the Union force succeeded in eliminating the immediate threat from Fremont. Having dealt with Fremont, Jackson pulled back out of the mountains and returned to the western edge of the Shenandoah on May 17th. In the process, he absorbed the six regiments of Allegheny Johnson's force and added them to his Valley Army. Stonewall was now ready to unite with Ewell and strike at Nathaniel Banks. And that is just about where we left off last time. As y'all recall, on April 30th, after advancing up the valley and losing track of Stonewall Jackson's whereabouts, Nathaniel Banks had confidently wired the War Department in Washington, saying, quote, There is nothing more to be done by us in the valley. Banks was mistakenly convinced that Jackson had already left the Shenandoah or was about to leave it, heading for Richmond to reinforce Joe Johnston's army. Banks, therefore, advised leaving 5,000 federal troops in the valley to keep an eye on things, while the rest could exit the Shenandoah and head east to aid in the drive on the rebel capital. Taking Banks' suggestions to heart, Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton ordered Banks to transfer one of his two divisions, the one commanded by James Shields, east to reinforce Irvin McDowell's corps. Once McDowell was reinforced by Shields' division and other scattered forces, he would have a force exceeding 35,000 men. McDowell would then march south from Fredericksburg, and his destination would be Richmond. With McDowell's men added to McClellan's force, 150,000 Federals would be at the gates of the rebel capital. On May 15th, Shields' division headed eastward out of the valley, leaving Nathaniel Banks with only the 4,500-man division commanded by Alpheus Williams, as well as about 1,500 cavalrymen. Significantly, the force left to Banks was composed of probably the most inexperienced veterans in the Union Army. Most had been under arms for more than a year. They had marched and drilled, and some of them had been involved in some brief skirmishes. But not one company of them had ever fired a shot in a battle. By May 22nd, Nathaniel Banks, at Strasburg, had started to rue the day he had confidently boasted to Washington that there is nothing more to be done by us in the valley. You see, by May 22nd, Banks was nervous. He was convinced that his little army, which now consisted of just Williams' division, was going to be attacked in the near future. By the 22nd, Banks was well aware that Stonewall Jackson had returned to the Upper Valley after fighting the Battle of McDowell and pushing Fremont back up into the mountains. With both Jackson and Ewell lurking nearby and far outnumbering his reduced command, Banks admitted his anxiety over Stonewall's next move in a message to Washington, declaring, quote, From all the information I can gather, I am compelled to believe that he meditates attack here. 
The division led by Brigadier General Alpheus Williams had been reduced to two infantry brigades after a third had been transferred to Irvin McDowell at the end of March. The eight remaining infantry regiments hailed from Maryland, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, and Indiana. In his May 22nd dispatch to the War Department, Banks complained that with the reduced force left to him, quote, we are compelled to defend at two points, both equally accessible to the enemy, end quote. Those two points were Strasburg and Front Royal, separated by 12 miles of the Manassas Gap Railroad and also connected by a winding country road. The importance of Strasburg and Front Royal was twofold. Each village not only had that rail connection, but each also lay along a north-south macadamized turnpike. By now, you've hopefully looked at a map of the area of operations here in the Shenandoah Valley, and you've seen how Massanutten Mountain divides the valley in two. To the west, therefore, was the wider valley, which retained the name Shenandoah Valley, while to the east of Massanutten Mountain was the second, narrower valley, which was called the Luray Valley. Remember, the long stretch of Massanutten Mountain is important because it not only divided the Shenandoah in two, but the mountain can only be easily crossed by a military force at one point, at one gap near Newmarket. And all of that will make sense as you look at a map. At any rate, Strasburg and Front Royal were those two points that needed to be defended by Nathaniel Banks' reduced force. Through Strasburg ran the Valley Turnpike, that vital north-south macadamized road to the west of Massanutten Mountain, while through Front Royal ran another macadamized turnpike, with that road running through the Luray Valley to the east of the Massanutten. And if you've been wondering what we mean when we keep mentioning macadamized turnpikes in this story arc, well, back then such a road was constructed of gravel layers set on a cement bed with limestone shoulders and so offered speedy travel, especially when rains turned the typical dirt roads to mud. The Valley Turnpike was especially important, linking as it did Stanton, Harrisonburg, Newmarket, Strasburg, and Winchester. Because of the geography and road networks, Strasburg was an important point of defense for the Union troops left in Nathaniel Banks. Most of Banks' available force was therefore stationed close to that place. But Banks was also concerned about the Luray Valley, where Ewell's force had been lurking, and Front Royal was the northern entrance to the Luray Valley, so Banks also needed to cover Front Royal. At that place, he positioned 900 infantry and two guns, but no cavalry. The gist of Banks' May 22nd message to the War Department was to create urgency in Washington to reinforce him. Banks even sent his adjutant to Washington to bolster the case for reinforcements in person. But although the man met with the Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, Stanton was irritated by Banks' request for more troops, and the Secretary of War said that he, quote, did not believe Jackson was at all to be dreaded, end quote. Although Banks thought he was fully aware of the danger facing him, he nevertheless completely underestimated Jackson's ability to move the various pieces on the chessboard. In his dispatch of the 22nd, 
Banks had said that he expected Stonewall to advance down the Valley Turnpike to Newmarket within 25 miles of him at Strasburg, but that he thought Yule was still at Swift Run Gap, nearly 60 miles from Front Royal. Little did the Federal commander realize that that very day, both Jackson and Yule would be united in the Luray Valley, much closer to the Union positions than Banks ever imagined was possible. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. At the end of April, Richard S. Yule's division had taken the place of Stonewall Jackson's army at the Confederate encampment in Elk Run Valley, at the foot of Swift Run Gap near Conrad's store. Thus began a dreadful ordeal for Yule, who in the days ahead would be driven to distraction by the strange and secretive behavior of Jackson. By habit and in appearance, Yule was every bit as peculiar as Stonewall. Richard Taylor, one of Yule's brigadiers, wrote that his chief's nervous energies, quote, prevented him from taking regular sleep and he passed the nights curled around a camp stool in positions to dislocate an ordinary person's joints. Yule's nerves were hardly soothed by the injunctions Jackson had left behind. Before Stonewall's departure, the two men had met to discuss matters, but the secret of Jackson had apparently been so vague about his intentions that Yule wasn't even sure who Stonewall was going off to attack. All Yule knew for for certain was that Jackson wanted him to keep an eye on Banks and discourage any federal attempts to depart the valley, and all the while he was to remain right where he was at Swift Run Gap. Almost every day brought new messages from Jackson, 
telling little about his own plans, but admonishing Yule to stay put. Finally, Yule's temper snapped. Colonel, he angrily questioned James A. Walker, one of his regimental commanders, did it ever occur to you that General Jackson is crazy? This was the same James Walker who had, as a cadet at VMI, challenged Professor Thomas J. Jackson to a duel when Jackson had Walker brought up on charges that resulted in his dismissal from VMI shortly before his graduation. Now, though, while allowing that Stonewall was known as Tom Full by the cadets, Walker told Yule, I do not suppose that he is really crazy. But Yule was having none of it. He barked back, I tell you, sir, he is as crazy as a March hare. He has gone away, I don't know where, and left me here with instructions to stay until he returns. I tell you, sir, he is crazy, and I will just march my division away from here. I do not mean to have it cut to pieces at the behest of a crazy man. A few days later, Yule heard that Jackson had been in a battle in the mountains west of Stanton. Still, his orders required him to wait, and so he did, although anxiously. A night or so later, on May 11th, Yule's trusted cavalry chief, Captain Thomas Munford, awakened him. It is now confirmed, Munford reported, Shields and his entire division were leaving the valley to reinforce McDowell at Fredericksburg. Yule, who was in bed, asked Munford to hand him a map. The captain wrote later that Yule, quote, with the aid of a miserable lard lamp, attempted to show me where Gen General Jackson was. Before I knew what he was after, he sprang out of bed with only a nightshirt on, no carpet on the floor, and down on his knees he went, his bones fairly rattled. His bald head and long beard made him look more like a witch than a major general. End quote. The longer Yule studied the map, the angrier he grew at Jackson. Finally, punctuating his views with some of the salty language for which he was famous, Yule burst out, This great wagon hunter is after a Dutchman, the old fool. General Lee and Richmond will have little use for wagons if all these people close in around him. We are left out here in the cold. Why, I could crush shields before night if I could move from here. This man Jackson is certainly a crazy fool, an idiot. Then, taking up and thrusting into the astounded Munford's face a dispatch in which Jackson had told of capturing Milroy's wagon train with the help of God, Yule exploded, What is Providence to do with Milroy's wagon train? Two days later, on May 13th, Yule wrote to a niece, saying, quote, I have spent two weeks the most unhappy I ever remember. I have a bad headache, what with the bother and folly of things. I never suffered as much from dyspepsia in my life. As an Irishman would say, I'm kilt entirely. End quote. Yule was a good soldier, though, and so he stayed put, although he continued to puzzle and fume over the string of dispatches he continued to receive from his superiors. By the 16th of May, he had received no fewer than 27 messages from Jackson, but also from Robert E. Lee and from Joe Johnston. But now Yule had had enough. On the 13th, Jackson had ordered Yule to pursue Banks if Banks withdrew down the valley. According to reports of cavalry scouts, Banks had already moved back to Strasburg, from which place Banks could use the Manassas Gap Railroad to depart the Shenandoah. 
Yule's most recent set of orders from Joe Johnston explicitly stated that if Banks' forces moved eastward across the Blue Ridge to link up with Urban McDowell, then Yule was also to leave the valley to reinforce Johnston's army defending Richmond. Yule's cavalry reported that Shields' entire division was already on the march to reinforce McDowell. All of this left Yule with a dilemma. Should he stay in the valley and follow Jackson's orders and go after Banks? Or should he leave the valley and follow Johnston's orders and go to reinforce the defense of Richmond? Yule vowed to wait for no more messages. He ordered his horse saddled, and he set off for Jackson's headquarters, 30 miles to the west, near the town of Mount Solon. Yule rode through the night and arrived at the Valley Army's camp at daybreak on May 18th. Yule was anxious to talk. Breakfast could wait, so the two generals went into conference in an old grist mill along a creek. Both men agreed that Joe Johnston's orders didn't fit the present situation, what with half of Banks' force departing the valley, but the other half staying put, at least for the moment. Both Ewell and Jackson saw a dazzling opportunity to strike Banks' reduced command and destroy it. As Ewell understood his orders from Johnston, though, he had no choice but to follow Shields and leave the valley. Stonewall was stunned. He said, quote, Then Providence denies me the privilege of striking a decisive blow for my country, and I must be satisfied with the humble task of hiding my little army about these mountains to watch a superior foe. But then Jackson grabbed at a straw. He showed Yule a message from Lee dated May 16th. Robert E. Lee shared Stonewall's strategic thinking, and although Lee had no command authority, his opinions still carried weight. Lee had written, quote, Whatever may be Banks' intention, it is very desirable to prevent him from going either to Fredericksburg or the peninsula. A successful blow struck at him would delay, if it does not prevent, his moving to either place, end quote. After warning Jackson to be prepared should Joe Johnston suddenly order him to rush east to aid the defense of Richmond, Lee advised, quote, Whatever movement you make against Banks, do it speedily, and if successful, drive him back towards the Potomac and create the impression, as far as practicable, that you design threatening that line, end quote. Yule still harbored doubts about Jackson's sanity, but he shared Stonewall's desire to strike the Federals a decisive blow. Although his division was officially part of Johnston's army, he was in the Shenandoah Valley under Jackson's authority. Stonewall had written Johnston the evening before asking for a new set of instructions in light of the changed circumstances in the valley and the prospect of crushing banks. But an answer couldn't be expected for three days, since Johnston insisted on using couriers rather than the telegraph. Yule told Jackson that he would stay and fight under Stonewall until Johnston replied, so long as Jackson assumed responsibility for their actions. And Stonewall agreed. He asked Yule to put his dilemma in writing, then and there, in a letter to which Jackson would respond in kind. Yule did so, falsely dating the letter and addressing it as if he were still at his encampment at Swift Run Gap and as if he had never made the nocturnal ride to Jackson's headquarters. After Yule finished, Jackson wrote out and handed Yule the reply, which was worded in such a way as to absolve Yule of any subsequent charges of disobedience. Jackson wrote, 
Headquarters, Valley District, Mount Solon, May 18, 1862, Major General R.S. Yule, Commanding 3rd Division, Army of the Peninsula. General, your letter of this date, in which you state that you have received letters from Generals Lee, Johnston, and myself, requiring somewhat different movements, and desiring my views respecting your position, has been received. In reply, I would state that, as you are in the Valley District, you constitute part of my command. Should you receive orders different from those sent from these headquarters, please advise me of the same at as an early date as practicable. You will please move your command so as to encamp between New Market and Mount Jackson on next Wednesday night, unless you receive orders from a superior officer and of a date subsequent to the 16th instant. T.J. Jackson, Major General Having obtained Yule's pledge to remain in the valley, and both men having covered their bases with the falsely constructed exchange of letters, Jackson explained his plan for defeating Banks. It was a simple one. He and Yule would concentrate their forces between New Market and Mount Jackson on the evening of May 21st. Once united, their commands would drive down the Valley Pike and overwhelm Banks at Strasburg. Their business concluded, Jackson invited Yule to breakfast. Afterward, Yule joined Jackson and his staff for Sunday prayer and a sermon by the Reverend Dabney at the camp of the 12th Georgia. No sooner had the services ended than Yule mounted up for the return trip to his division, which he made in the face of a hard afternoon rain shower. Yule hadn't slept in 24 hours, nor would he get much rest. Jackson had the Valley Army on the road at 5 a.m. the next day, May 19th, and Yule had his own division marching down out of Swift Run Gap at daybreak. So began ten days of marching and fighting that would take the Confederates almost to the banks of the Potomac and would make Stonewall Jackson a legend in his own time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Stonewall Jackson's 1862 Valley Campaign, War Comes to the Home Front, by Jonathan A. Noyalis. This is one of the books in the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series. The quality of the books in this series is generally very good, although some, especially a few of the early offerings, aren't that great. The overall quality of the books seemed to improve, though, as the series progressed, and some titles are first-rate treatments of battles. Anyway, Noyalis' book on the Valley Campaign isn't the first and won't be the last title in this series that we recommend. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. New members joining the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade are Rob, Michael, and Geary. Just today, we released the 30th members episode, and with that show, we looked at the brief but memorable career of Turner Ashby, who led Stonewall Jackson's cavalry during the Valley Campaign. And then we also wanted to give a shout-out to Gary G. in New York and Bill P. in Georgia for their recent donations. Thanks, gentlemen. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. 
Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.